0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: Our uh, guest today is Jack who runs the YouTube channel The Jackmaster Mongrel History and if the name didn't give it away we're going to talk about Mongrel history today and this is the first episode of the podcast actually where we're covering Asian history and I hope to do more of this in the future and we are going to specifically focus on one part of Mongrel history today which is the infamous Golden Horde and you your character are you know, our, our PhD candidate on Mongol history so how did how did you come end up studying Mongol history
0: um so i get the question a lot sometimes how does a canadian end up interested in mm. mongol history well uh when i was quite young my mother bought me a book series by connor golden which so was sort of a historical fiction talking about the rise to power of chinggis khan so that's Genghis Khan, as we normally call him, but properly Mongolian Chinggis Khan, and it's uh, it's it's just fiction. It's but it was a good story. It was one I quite enjoyed. Uh, I'm from a part of Canada which is geographically quite similar to Mongolia: very flat, cold, lots of horses. I'd never lived in an actual city, so I connected, I think, quite well with the. uh, the setting of the story, and I I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to I wanted to learn more about this. I think I was waiting for the next book in the series to come out, and I came across uh, Jack Weatherford's *Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World*, which and, and Weatherford's a great writer. I have mm-hmm. some issues with the historical accuracy of the work, but it's a fantastic introduction if you know like nothing about the topic at all. And I read that, and I was. I don't know, I want to say it was maybe 13 years old, and I was just enamored by it. And it kind of stayed in my mind up until, I think, my undergraduate program, and I started to look into it more seriously. And now a couple of years later, I'm working on my PhD on the Mongols. Uh, For several years now, I've been involved in my own YouTube channel dedicated to the Mongol Empire and other nomadic peoples. I write regularly for the Kings and Generals channel all their videos on the Mongols and the Timurids. I write for medievalists.net. With Kings and Generals, we did a podcast series for two years dedicated just on the Mongol Empire. I wrote all of that. I have several articles published. I've written in some magazines. And as already noted, I've I've already written my master's degree on the Mongols. I have a PhD on the way and presumably much more as well.
1: Hopefully have a few books as well in the future. I'm looking forward to reading those. But I want to begin before we go into the Golden Horde itself. I want to be, we have to understand how the empire was formed, and I want to take a look at the Mongol, and I'm going to follow a little bit of Frank McLean's work on Genius Khan, which was my first introduction to the Mongol Empire. So I want to, and he begins, and I want to begin this as well with the landscape of the Mongol, because I think feel like it's kind of essential as well. Like you said, it's kind of, you, you, you but you can, it's kind of essential in understanding how the Mongols worked and how how they were able to forge the empire.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so that, this is a very important point. So much of the Eurasian landmass is uh, made up of this band of dry grasslands called steppe. So this, this is the Great Eurasian Steppe, which stretches essentially from Hungary through to Mongolia proper. And now this is up until quite recently been dominated by people who lived as nomads, steppe pastoralists. So uh, they lived out of felt tents, yurts, and herded uh, horse, sheep, goat, camel, uh, and cattle Uh, and lived off of these products and they are famous as horse archers predominantly. Now you see from the Scythians through to the Huns, Uh, numerous Turkic peoples, of course, the Mongols, the Timurids, uh, the Zhungars, all of these people living on horseback, uh, practicing archery every day became formidable warriors. And throughout history, from uh, the borders of China to Europe, across the Islamic world, Central Asia, nomadic horse archers are some of the most fearsome warriors and effective warriors you can come across. So the Mongols form of warfare is still dominated by these lightly armoured horse archers. And the Hmong, they don't necessarily, they don't invent this, as you'll sometimes hear people say things amounting to that, but they kind of uh, perfect it in certain ways. And they use the steppe in a way as a sort of highway across Asia. It's a uh, perfect landscape for raising vast herds of horses. So for one thing, These nomadic armies, especially the Mongol armies, had a tremendous amount of horses when many medieval societies are struggling to outfit, I don't know, a tenth of their troops on horseback. So the Mongols always have, because of their lifestyle, their environment, greater mobility, greater long-range firepower compared to a significant number of their enemy. Mm. And this is a huge advantage in a medieval context. Now, we should note one stereotype here. The steppes are not empty land. These are not, nomadism is not aimless wandering wherever people want to go. These lands are divided into pastures. People are supposed to follow specific routes within these. You're not, it's, and they are assigned to lands. And in exchange for these assigned to lands, people owe labor, military service, taxation to their overlords. So it's kind of, imagine the steps are divided into this huge kind of feudal division. Every plot of land assigned to members of whatever family is ruling it. So in the 13th and 14th century, this is mainly the Mongol royal family. And over the course of the 13th century, the western end of these steps are assigned to the family of Chinggis Khan's eldest son, Jochi. This becomes the nucleus of the golden horde so essentially all the lands west of the irtysh river uh, imagine from modern kazakhstan all the way west through russia ukraine to the very borders of hungary this was all part of the golden horde as mm. we call it today and maybe it was called at the time the the naming is kind of a fun topic in and of itself mm. but it's easy for now to think of it as the Golden Horde or the Ulus or Conite of Jochi. The rulers of the Golden Horde were all the descendants of Jochi.
1: As, as I made, mentioned, it wasn't just the Golden Horde. There were several, like the Blue Horde, I think they were called as well. There weren't just the Golden Horde. There were in divisions, several divisions, if you will. So I thought, let's so, talk about several other divisions as well before moving we move on.
0: So the... We have to deal with then the name. Of, so, what Golden Horde signifies. Um, firstly, you'll sometimes hear people say Golden Horde, this is a name invented by the Russians in the 1600s mm. or something. We actually see the term Golden Horde appear in the 13th century, not to this Khanite, but to the uh, palace of the great Khan. Uh, the word Horde in English, Horde comes from Turkic and Mongol Urdu, which means like an army command or a palace tent or uh, so, you know, this kind of command center. And uh, so the, the Urdu, in any case, this is, you can think of this like the general or the prince, his retinue, his generals, his family, they're together. Uh, this is where the army command is uh, or his court in a way. And when it's golden in Mongolian, in Turkish Alton, uh, this, this means the center. Uh, in the to Mongols and Turks, and actually many people as well, there are certain colors associated with directions. For the center, this color is gold. So Alton Ordu, Old Orda, uh, this is the golden center. This is the golden court. And this is how we see certain travelers um, refer to the tents of the great Khan or like his specific uh, kind of where he's holding court is the Alton So it could be that the original use of Alton Orda, golden horde is just to the tent of, or the the command center of, the Khan of the Jotred Uls, the Jotred States, sort of like how we might use Washington to refer to the United States mm. or um, Downing Streets to refer to the British government, this kind of thing. Now, that's kind of generates a bit later when we're actually discussing how did this look in the early 13th century? These lands are given to the sons of Jochi. And now Jochi, he is, we can say, one detail that comes across about him in sources is that he had lots of children, many, many sons. Uh, In one source, Shiraldin, din he mentions that Jochi had 40 sons, but he only uh, names 13 of them.
1: The hell of Christmas.
0: (laughs) It was a lot of sons, a lot of daughters who go unnamed. Uh, probably a lot of bastard children as well. Um, so each of the the most important of Jochi's sons are his oldest sons. These are uh, Orda. So again, this Orda, Ordu name. Uh, Orda, this is Jochi's oldest son. And Batu, this is Jochi's second son. Now, it's pretty much standard in the... Mongol and Turkic hierarchies is that things are divided into a left and a right hand. And this is when Jochi dies in 1225, most likely 1225, uh, Chinggis Khan gives the holdings of Jochi's family to the sons and appoints, and basically it's this east-west division. For some reason, Batu is made the senior in rank over his older brother Orda. It's not really clear why. You know, maybe he's uh, Jochi's fav- favorite or something, or seen as more competent, or or whatever.
1: Was it kind of like in the Ottoman Turks that when you, if you wanted to become a sultan, you had to kill your brothers? Was that the case in Mongol?
0: No, no, it, no, is, it is. We don't see very much of that. You do see some purges and civil wars, but there's not a dedicated system of murdering the brothers or something. And we don't really get this. There isn't a great indication of necessarily animosity between Batu and Orda, but there is some sort of division. And the thing is Batu, he is senior, but he is not overlord to Orda for whatever reason. So, These lands are divided, and it seems that Orda's territory is essentially totally autonomous. That Batu doesn't really have any control in it, but he has some degree of influence there. And this is when we actually deal with the history of the Golden Horde in the 13th century. This seems to be the case with the successors to each of these brothers. That this is essentially two halves called a white and a blue horde up until the early 1300s when the Khans of the western half of the so-called Golden Horde bring the line of Orda into the, under their rule. Uh, now, I'm sort of dodging around the names here because this is a, a great deal of controversy over which one of these was the White Horde and which one of these was the Blue Horde because it changes in different sources. So, uh, as I mentioned, there's colors are associated with directions here. So normally, white, auk, is associated with the West, and uh, blue, uh, Kirk, Guk, is associated with the East. Except, so you would expect the White Horde to be the Western and Blue Horde to be the Eastern, or the White Horde being ruled by the line of Batu, Blue Horde being ruled by the line of Orda except some sources switch this around. So then Blue Horde becomes the West, White Horde becomes the East. I'm of the opinion that the White Horde was the West and Blue Horde was the East. This seems more likely to me. It seems kind of weird that they would have switched this up, but it's, I, I find it usually to dodge around that, I call it the Ulus of Batu and Ulus of Orda, because one's ruled by the line of Batu, and one's ruled by the line of Orda, and this sort of stays how things go until about 1360 or so. Mm -hmm. Now, you might also have had other divisions within that because all of the descendants of Jochi, all of his sons would have had Ordas, orders, or lands within this. And maybe they all had color designations, but we don't really get a good... Um, depiction of this until substantially later. So in sources of these um, 16th century, I believe, some Turkic chronicles, um, when writing for rulers who are descended from some of Jochi's lesser children, they will then say that their ancestor, who was the son of Jochi, But not Batu or Orda, but one of his other many sons says, "Oh, at the same time that we get this blue horde and white horde, and we see this, uh, I forget what it is now—gray horde, silver horde, maybe." Um,
1: I heard silver horde from. Might might be. I
0: don't. I don't quite. I don't remember right at this moment. Um, But then we, but we see things like that. They'll say, and this is probably retroactive, making this tripartite division because this is not apparent in the 13th or 14th century sources. It might have been there, but maybe not under that name. So the kind of the end result of all that is when we're dealing with the Golden Horde, we're kind of dealing with something a kind of of uncertain name and kind of uncertain divisions within it uh, and uncertain name of those divisions. Um, now, part of the reason for this uncertainty is that we don't have any sources from the Golden Horde itself for this period. Now, there is a stereotype that the Mongols, that we don't have sources from the Mongol Empire, that they're all written by their enemies. This is not true. We do see some uh, indigenous sources written in the Mongol language, most notably the secret history of the Mongols, but there's also some inscriptions and other things written in Mongolian. Uh, But you also see in the other divisions of the great Mongol Empire, In Mongol-ruled China, you see a number of histories there written in Chinese and probably with Mongolian originals that are now lost. And in the Ilhanite, this is the division of the Mongol Empire ruling. uh, Today's Middle East also writes a number of Persian language sources, Arabic language sources. Now, probably the reason we have sources for these two Khanites and not the other Khanites, these blue white hordes and Chagatai Khanite, the other Mongol Khanite in Central Asia. These other Khanites probably did not have any local write, chronicle writing tradition that they picked up, or if they did, these were lost in the civil wars and destructions over the 14th century, especially following the Black Death. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the Golden Horde, uh, the invasion of Emir Timur, Tamerlane, uh, a Central Asian conqueror, Uh, He came in and he sacked essentially every major city of the Golden Horde, all of its capitals and everything. And whatever written material was there, if not historical chronicles, then uh, charter, census data, whatever notices, all of these things were carried off, destroyed, burnt. These cities were abandoned. These documents were left to the elements and then lost and with Russian expansion, or expansion of the Russian Empire eastwards under, sorry, not Russian Empire yet, still, just be Muscovy. Uh, under Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century, then you see another round of looting of whatever was left of these cities, essentially. So whatever material might have been left was, was long gone by now. And this means, when we discuss the history of the Golden Horde, We're discussing its history, essentially all from outsiders who had many different opinions about it. So we have material about the Golden Horde from Mongol sources, so from the Yuan dynasty in Chinese, uh, from the Ilhanites and its successors, including the Timurids, largely in Persian, uh, who are, they are mostly antagonistic to the Golden Horde. You have stuff on the Golden Horde from the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt, written in Arabic, which is actually one of our most important sources on the Golden Horde's internal history. You have stuff in Greek from the Byzantine Empire. Uh, You have material from the uh, Rus principalities written in old church Slavonic. And you have uh, material in Latin from Franciscans, Franciscan missionaries who worked in the Golden Horde. Uh, And then we have, as I mentioned a little earlier, we have this later Turkic chronicle tradition which reused some of these older Persian works, but also uh, appears to have incorporated some oral folk tales from the former lands of the Golden Horde. So, and then this is all buffeted by uh, archaeology, so uh, numismatic data, uh, the ruins of cities, the Golden Horde in the steppe uh, when it is enforced this period of uh, peace on the on the steps prevents raiding and stuff. It they establish a number of quite large settlements, urban centers running across the steppes. The most notable of these were Sarai, Sarai al-Jadid. So this is his palace. And and these are quite large cities. Even Batuta, the famous um traveler, he stops in, in these cities as the part of his journeys, and he calls them some of the largest cities he's ever been to. And you had obviously mongols there you had local turkic peoples we know they also brought um rus peoples east with them and also there were peoples from central asia central asian muslims turks persian arabs there we have ibn batuta um encounters greeks in these cities indians even um jewish diaspora from spain he encounters there uh they were large set, like huge craft production centers. And it was, there's just fascinating, fascinating information on, on these and how they incorporated or how they were part of the Golden Horde's economy. And indeed uh, the economy of the 13th and 14th century world, because these are uh, obviously, we've all heard of the Silk Road and these are sort of your quintessential Silk Road cities growing rich and fat off of the Silk Roads. And then when these systems are uh, broken up because of the Black Death and disintegration of these Mongol Khanites in the late 14th century, and also with invasions by Timur, uh, Muscovy, these cities are largely collapsed and are abandoned by the 16th century, with a handful that managed to hold on. Um, perhaps the most notable being what's today, Astrakhan was established, I believe, in the 14th century.
1: So, Let's talk do we know about what age you thought started training it to become in the Golden Horde and was there any requirements to become part of the Golden Horde and as you mentioned they were fair-fierced horse warriors. and what, what are some tactics they used when just there was three and again Frank McLean mentioned this, it's three infamous tactics that the Golden Horde used when when they were in campaign, so let's talk a little bit about training and tactics <laughs> used for, by the Golden Horde.
0: So, um, for there's there's a great sort of saying about this, where in the for Turkic and Mongolian nomads, there is no distinction between a civilian and a and a warrior. The word for man in these languages, as it is in, in the modern forms just means warrior, so like Erkek in modern Turkish, it means a warrior, a fighter, because every man who who could ride a horse and shoot a bow was a warrior and could be called up for war. We see a number of sources state things along the lines of every man between age 15 and 60 was expected to fight. Now, kind of the years kind of change on this. You know, some sources will be like, oh, 14 to 50, but it's this kind of expectation that every able-bodied person in the society can partake in more. And this is why these nomadic societies are able to field quite large armies compared to their sedentary neighbors, is because a larger percentage of the population is actually fit for combat, just because of their own lifestyle. Uh, Literally, the children would be put on the back of the horse before they could walk and like tied into a saddle. Mm. So they were good from the youngest. age, it doesn't possibly. sound
1: traumatic at all.
0: <laughs> oh, so I did. I, I did similar things growing up in Canada mm-hmm. actually. Um, where so from the young age, the children, they get the uh, balance, uh, endurance and sort of the ability to sit comfortably on horse, literally spending their entire lives on horseback. Mm. Now this is, you can train to be a horse rider, or you can grow up as one. You can be raised one, and the difference in riding ability between the two between these two types, uncomparable. Mm-hmm. So it's from young age, you're basically living on the back of a horse, and you're shooting a bow every day. Mm-hmm. Now, so this something is also... I want to
1: ask about. So, uh, sorry for interrupting. You. I thought there, but I, I want to ask because before we're moving on, was I just just want to get a certain way was because in Europe as you know at the time until the Janissaries there was no real standing army. Was the the Horde a standing army, or did they just crawl in whenever they were required going in combat? The
0: the army would not be mobilized outside of going on campaign. But this is the thing, as as we're getting to here. When everyone's on, in horseback in these systems, they can be mobilized quite quickly. They are Their whole camps for most people in society can be cleaned up and uh, put onto the back of a wagon, literally, mm-hmm. and then carried off with them while they go on campaign. So because everyone is, is on horseback, has their own horse, is bringing their own horse to battles, bringing their own bows, this is essentially the two elements they need the most. And having, having swords, daggers, spears, these are all secondary because all of their tactics and all of their strategies are built around maximizing this mobility and firepower. It's about outmaneuvering the enemy and doing as much damage as you can to them from far away. And all of their tactics emphasize this. This is across cross among Empire across all nomadic states and especially in the Golden Horde as well uh metal production is not impossible on the step I'm working on a project right now that's going to on I'm going to put on my my own channel and some other articles and stuff that's going to go into this metal production aspect but so there is metal production in the steps so wealthier peoples are having access to armor swords all these things so it is possible to get these things but it's not necessary because if you're uh, if you're able to kill your enemy from 30, 30 meters away and he can't touch you, mm. why would you want to get closer? Yeah. There is putting more armor on yourself. It's just putting more weight on you and your horse. Uh, you know, not necessarily slowing you down, but tiring the horse out more. Maybe, maybe you can't move quite as quick. Uh, if you feel like you're just going to get out of the way of the enemy's arrows... Um, and why are you putting a bunch of armor on yourself? And this is, in fact, what we see in a lot of the sources. Um, there is sort of this interesting phenomenon where, because the Golden Horde is often antagonistic to its neighbors to the south. the First the Ilhanite, then the Ilhanite successor states, and then uh, the Timurids under Timur and his successors. And there is a consistent stereotype in all of these sources that the Khan of the Golden Horde has a nearly endless supply of warriors, but that they're all very poorly armored. They have very little actual equipment. And this doesn't mean they're bad fighters by any means. They're not fearsome, but the general indication is there's not a lot of armor on these guys, that the tactics are going to be a lot of hit and run, a lot of skirmishing. One of the tactics we see often associated with the Mongols is the Mongol army, Uh, breaking up into small parties and that they're running at the enemy in sort of these small groups. They'll run up, they'll charge, they'll shoot arrows at them, they'll ride back, and then they'll do what's called the Parthian shot. So that's the famous, you sit on horseback, you shoot backwards like that while you're riding away and shooting an arrow back at the guys Mm. on the other side. So this does a couple things. Obviously, you're shooting arrows at the guys. That's not... That's not nice for the guys on the receiving end of that. These are very powerful bows, uh, strong arrows. Uh, In most cases, an enemy army isn't going to be completely covered in armor and things. So you have uneven quality of armor. The arrows, if they're not killing, they're they're injuring, they're frightening guys. For the guys standing there, they don't know which one of these charges are going to turn into an actual charge into their lines or pull away. Um, it's mentally, it's quite difficult to stand in place while a bunch of horses run at you. I have been in situations in my life where I've had uh, cattle, for instance, a herd of cattle run at me. We were doing branding and we had to sort of corral them into a section of the pasture. And at one point I ended up kind of standing in front of the herd while they all ran at me. And a sensation of sort of the earth shaking, this. Um, the the sound of, 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 of all their, hoo- of, on their hooves as they beat the ground and just this sort of mass of flesh coming at you. You can't really uh, wrap your mind around it until you're on the other side of that. Mm. And there wasn't even guys on top of the cows trying to kill me at the same time. and I, But I, I remember sort of this clear voice in my head going, this is a bad place to be standing right mm. now. Uh, so we have to imagine... 13th, 14th century, you have one army standing there, all these horses are running at them, guys shooting arrows at them. Your instincts, if you are not a very well trained or disciplined force, are going to be run away from that. In which case, the Mongols pursue you. And when when the when a formation's broken, that that is when most of the fatalities occur in that evil combat, when one side's basically stopped fighting and started running. It so is if you're brilliant doctor. So, It's about maximizing your strengths and minimizing your weaknesses, playing to your strengths, playing to the enemy weaknesses. So if the enemy flees, you run in pursuit. If he chases you, then we get the most famous of all nomadic tactics, the feigned retreat. So this is when the enemy breaks formation to pursue the horsemen while they're running away. So at the same time, the horse, the nomads are shooting arrows back at the enemy until they pull them quite a distance away From the rest of the enemy force in which case then uh more nomads left in waiting or left in hiding they regroup and then they surround this force which has now left the position which is now isolated and they fall upon it and they invariably destroy it this is literally oldest trick in the book kind of thing and you will be shocked when you read the sources how consistently it works Everyone falls for it. And from what and, I
1: understood as well, they, they could do this feigned retreat for days and then just to bother the hell out of the opponents. And finally, they would charge and just destroy them.
0: Yeah. Well, a, a good feigned retreat looks like a real retreat. And this is where people, they. Get, so, what I mentioned, the Mongols, you know, they, you, you guy, your guys break formation, the Mongols pursue and fall right and in, uh, in, cut them down. So this is what the other guys are now trying to do. In this case, this is what they think they're going to do. And remember, if you're just standing there and guys are shooting at you and you can't do anything, your instinct is going to be run away or try and get them. You're angry. They've come in here. They've been burning your villages, you know, destroying farmland, slaughtering people. Now they're killing your buddies around you. You want to get back at them. You want to swing your axe. You want to charge at them. This is normally the enemy cavalry who breaking the formation for this. And they, they just think, you know, those guys, those nomads, those Mongols, they're so lightly armoured. If I can only get close to them, I'll cut down and I'll kill the lot of them. And it's this overconfidence, which is this, this need to strike back, is what we see happen again and again. They leave formation, pursue to feigned retreat, and they're killed. We even see the, the, in, in China... During the start of Mongol campaigns in North China against the Jin dynasty, we see garrisons in, within these cities will leave their formations or leave the city to pursue the Mongols and get drawn into feigned retreats. And this was how the Mongols, before they even learned how to you know, get through city walls, are able to take so many cities in northern China so quickly because the, the Chinese, the Jurchen, the Khitan defenders keep doing this.
1: They really have perfected the filmie once, for me twice.
0: It, it's you know, we when we do see in, in sources people like begging, don't fall for this. If you see mm. the nomads run, don't pursue them mm. because people recognize this is a problem. Yeah. But it's it's easy to say that on a piece of paper, don't do this. And obviously these things look obvious in hindsight. But it's a different thing when you have the mentality of being on the battlefield in this. Mm. Now, the adrenaline, say, right? Well, exactly. Adrenaline. You want to fight. It's mentally, I'd imagine, the most difficult thing you can be told to do is just stand there and take it. I now, mean,
1: I just stand in there. Hey, they don't get you. What, what's the point? Just, oh, okay. Yeah. No, don't listen to me.
0: Fine. That's fine. <laughs> so if you do have an occasion, though, when the army just stands there, And, you know, they have nice big shields. So imagine uh, a nice disciplined group of hoplites, right? They have their their shields up and they're Mm. getting arrows in their shields. They're not chasing over after the Mongols. So what happens in this case? So the Mongols, and, and we have the sources, they explain what happens. The Mongols will leave a small group to sort of keep this enemy army there in position, hold them. And then they'll move around. They'll try and flank them. Uh, there's some cases they'll, they'll drive cattle into the enemy formation, like they'll, because they're they bringing their herds with them, or they'll take local herds, drive them into the enemy formation, mm. or they just leave and start attacking other things. And now the army who's left in their formation here is standing there going, that's a bunch of smoke coming up over the hill. They're burning our villages. they're killing more of our mm. our people here. Do we just stand here do and the Mongols are perfectly happy to leave the enemy army there indefinitely and potentially uh run out of um supplies run out of uh water and then they have to start sending out foragers who the mongols are going to try and pick off and it's <coughs> like there And there's so much more elements to this. This is why nomadic armies are so dangerous. As I said, this mobility, this firepower aspect. Even if your side is really dis- discipl- very disciplined, has nice equipment, good armor, they're not going to fall for feigned retreats. You still have to deal with the fact that to the Mongols, there's no advantage in uh, forcing a pitched battle it's there's very little interest in getting close with the enemy now the mongols they do have their own heavy cavalry we have visual depictions of it archaeological remains textual descriptions of it and it's mostly kind of employed and it is last resort or employ or to break a opening in the enemy lines or we have these feigned retreat examples here uh or they will have um subject peoples who are the, the mongols consider more expendable who they will send against a force like this but in general the rest of the army you know very lightly armored has lots of arrows but why why do you want them to risk their lives these are very valuable troops you don't want them risking their lives in the close quarters engagement that's needless losses
1: now i want to add this Regarding the faint retreat, one that we spoke about now, and we discussed this in our Ottoman Sultan episode part one, where for the early Ottoman Turks they do copy this faint retreat, and that's what made them so successful. When they Osman made these 300 quote unquote uh, horse warriors, they do kind of copy this faint retreat, and it works for them as well. It's not, it, it works brilliantly. That's what one of the reasons why the Ottomans became successful later on.
0: No, uh, nomads aren't the only ones to employ this. Other people are are aware of this. You see this throughout the centuries of military history everywhere. It's just nomadic uh, armies or armies with lots of horses are very good at implementing it. Mm -hmm. And this is often, this is the qualitative difference between these two uh, forces. So... I I'd, I'd imagine you look in the art of war there's probably something in there about that as well like it's this is not a new new trick i if i remember correctly uh there's supposed to be a, some scythian victory over cyrus the great and it maybe it might be legendary kind of thing but supposedly one of the ways cyrus the great is is killed is he falls for a feigned retreat or uh his, his army uh is is destroyed through one. So, and that's this is like a good, a good uh, I want to say 1500 years before Chinggis Khan. Like, this is not, these are not new tactics the Mongols or the Golden Horde are employing. They are just, these are the tools of nomadic armies. The Mongols are sort of the latest and perhaps the greatest to use them. And you might, and again, Why don't people learn? They do learn and there actually are a couple cases where it gets employed against the Mongols themselves, sometimes by other uh, Mongol armies during the civil wars. So it's not that the Mongols can't fall for it, but again, if some there's not that many uh, an army is a complicated thing to run and there isn't generally a lot of innovation and some of the tricks armies use against each other. If they work, there's a reason they work. That they're s- Things have to be somewhat simple in concept in order to get a large number of people to pull them off successfully.
1: Right. Was there a hierarchy in the Golden Horde? Like if, if I wanted to become a general, was, did I have to be born like, in Europe in... And- noble family to be, or if it was experienced, valued. Like with the genocide again, I want to compare to the Ottoman Turks, but with the Janissaries, you experience what's valued. So if you became, you couldn't become a general without being a nobility. But was this the case in Mongol you had to be of noble birth in order to lead the army.
0: We do, you often hear about the Mongol meritocracy system, that the Mongols only, uh, Uh, promoted based on merit. This is somewhat overstated. It is slightly true, especially in the early Mongol Empire. But the the thing is, all the positions of power in the Mongol states are hereditary. So this is part of the reason why people want them and why there's such an honor to have them is because it's not just you who gets them, your descendants can get them as well. So what happens rather quickly in, in the Mongol Empire, you get kind of this two levels of nobility. You have the uh, Alton Urog, the golden lineage. So this mm-hmm. is the family of Chinggis Khan and his descendants. And then you have the, the Noyad or the Harrachu. So this is the military elite. And this is generally the people who are descendants of the uh, generals who were appointed in the... The early years of the Mongol Empire. And you see these same families com- uh, coming to power again and again across the Mongol Khanites and their successor states. Interestingly, in the Golden Horde, almost all of our named commanders of armies are members of the royal family. There are very few occasions where we see any non chinggisids leading any sort of armies in the Golden Horde. Mm. There's very little indication of anyone rising through the ranks or anyone who's not a member of the Royal family is adjacent to it. They get uh, rewarded with uh, a marriage to a Chinggisid bride or they already have some sort of power base uh, that they're already the Lord of some region in the empire. So they're a part of this uh, secondary nobility level.
1: Mm. Now let's talk about besieging a city because that was quite happened quite a lot of, as well. And you had I b- believe there was two choices you had in besieging a city. One, you can surrender and you would despair, or two, you could not and God Lord help yourself. So how 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 did the Mongols have techniques to besiege a city? Did they we talked about this in the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate with Peter Tronsenky, whom I know you know, but they did have siege engines, at least by the time of Baghdad, but before Baghdad, did they have siege engines like trebuchets, or did they just try to start them out when when the siege the city, or how, how did the techniques there work?
0: So we, we touched on this very briefly with the, uh, the feigned retreats. Right. So the Mongols are initially just employing feigned retreats to get garrisons to uh, leave their position. We see they're very the Mongols in the very first years of conquest, like we're looking at the very first two or three years of the wars in China, they don't know how to take cities. So we're seeing these feigned retreats. We see the most famous example is they try and divert a river to mm-hmm. undermine a city and accidentally flood their own camp and process. Um, Not backfired. <laughs> it was, I mean, it worked in the end, but it was kind of a bit of an egg on their face. Yeah um but they learn quite quickly because they capture people who know what to do or uh in the wars against the jin dynasty we see a massive amount of defections by the time the mongols invade the jin dynasty the the rulers of the jin dynasty in so the dynasty ruling northern china they're they're hated they're seen as incompetent uh the army was this horrible. You had like this three-tier ethnic hierarchy. So the Jin dynasty was ruled by people called the Zheqin. So they're the ancestors of the Manchu who founded Qing dynasty in the 17th century. So basically all the top positions, important positions in the Jin dynasty army are held by the Zheqin. And then you have like these two other ethnic groups. So the, the Northern Chinese, the Han Chinese peoples, and also the Khitans. So the Khitans, they ruled previously a dynasty in North China, the Lao dynasty, which was conquered by the Jin in the early 12th century. But much of this population remained in China. And they were, they also, uh, they were very similar to the Mongols. They spoke a language adjacent to Mongolian, often here called paramongolic. Um, So they also thought on horseback with bows and things, and so did the Jurchen. But uh, there was a lot of animosity, animosity between them. And what Chinggis Khan did was appeal to this animosity and convince thousands and thousands of defectors every year to join him. They were actually, allegedly, we even, Khitan and Chinese defectors were joining him even before he invaded China in the first place. Uh, but these the factions grow so uh, so great that by 1216, mm. only five years into the Mongol conquests, there are more Chinese fighting for the Mongols in China than there are Mongols fighting in China. Mm. This is huge. We see specifically there's that is
1: fascinating.
0: There's entire siege, like companies of like siege engineers who know how to work and build these siege machines, they joined the Mongols. I think the first mentioned one in the sources, I want to say 1214, 1213, 1214. This is kind of, there's not not, not that we should get too deep into the details here, but the first two or three years of the Mongol attacks on North China. So this starts 1211, the war of the Jin dynasty for the first year or two, rather, it's, it's almost like the Mongols aren't sure what they want to do. If they just want to raid, because mm. the first year, like they'll attack and then they leave and then they don't even like fortify the border passes that they captured. And then they kind of realize, oh, this is, we have to retake these things if we want to keep raiding. And sort of over 12, 13 is like this hinge switches and they go mm. from, we actually have to start holding on to some of this territory here and they start really building an army that can actually reliably start assaulting these hard points. And then you see like almost right away, they, they love these guys. They love car- carpenters, craftsmen, stonemasons, engineers. And this is sort of famous across the Mongol conquests is when they take a city, it's these skilled people's who are taken into the army and put into these positions to building weapons for taking cities. So in the form of uh, catapults, uh, siege ladders, um, like shelters for approaching the walls, battering rams, uh, guys to undermine the walls, all sorts of positions. And they also incorporate forced labor. So all of their prisoners have to go before the army basically as arrow fodder pushing these machines, filling in the ditches with their bodies even. And meanwhile, the garrison is forced to make the choice between, do I shoot on our own people or, uh, you know, and kill maybe even people I know, or do I allow the Mongols to, uh, or th- these, these prisoners to carry out the Mongols plan here, filling in the moats, breaking down the walls. And I imagine psychologically that must have been the horrible choice to make. Um, so this is early on by literally within the first five years of the Mongol conquest, the Mongols have most of the tools that they use across Asia. Hmm. Uh, when they start, their are attacks against the Islamic powers of Central Asia, so most famously against the Horizmian Empire. Hmm. So the Khwarezmians, it seems kind of their um, belief going into the war was... Hmm okay, we can just leave our garrisons in the cities because they are nomads and they don't have the ability to take fortifications. So we can sit comfy in our cities and these people will come in, they'll make noise, or the nomads will come in, they'll make noise, they'll cause devastation, but they'll leave.
1: Not this nomad; they won't.
0: <sighs> it was a bad calculation because when the Mongols show up in Central Asia, then they have all the means they need to take cities in In the to take all the fortifications they come across, and even better, the uh defensive strategy the Horizmian state has chosen is one that (laughs) ensures now these Mongol armies aren't even harassed while they're attacking the walls because each city is basically being picked off one by one, Hmm. and this is this what this turns it into just this horrific military disaster for the Horizmians.
1: I don't remember where. Rare stuff sort of this guy was, but I re- was reading really a book in preparation for this, and there was uh, there was this guy. He was called Muhammad. he was this ruler. You might remember know who I'm talking about. But he kind of tried to defy. Him. He was kind of hated by his people, I think. And I don't remember his name, but he did fight against the Golden Horde at one point. I can't remember what, what where he was or what city it was, but uh, details. But you might does this ring a bell?
0: Well, not a shortage of guys named That's Muhammad fair enough in but it, was, it was, but, uh, 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 you're probably thinking of Muhammad Horizm Shah.
1: That's it probably yeah yeah. I can, I just couldn't remember too much detail but I remember reading about him but I did not remember Yeah. Exactly. The
0: the, the Horizm Shahs were yeah. um not terribly popular. They were Muhammad in particular uh Muhammad the 2nd Horizm Shah, Aladin Muhammad um he uh, very cocky man. He greatly expand. He and his father greatly expanded the Horizon Empire. He, in twelve seventeen, I believe, he even tries to attack Baghdad uh, and fails. But he was he thought really highly of himself. He styled himself the Second Alexander, as in the Second Alexander the Great. Uh, and he, if, if you know the story of the the massacre of the uh, Mongol merchant caravan. Yeah. So, this is Muhammad's uncle who carries this out at the city of Utrar. And probably this was carried out with some level of approval on the part of Muhammad. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine this. Like, either this was carried out with Muhammad's approval, or he's, his influence in the states was even less than might be imagined. That he had this little power over his some of his most important vassals, uh, and the part of the reason why sort of this, well, even when Muhammad's son uh, Jalal al Din flees to India and he finds no no aid there because people there trusted the Horizmi in so little they'd rather work with the Mongols. That <laughs>
1: says something about your reputation, I think.
0: He's very, uh, they did not have a good, <laughs> their, their reputation was essentially of treacherous and uh, militaristic and expansionistic and uh, mm. not uh, like there was a common rumor at the time. Well, actually a little later, but there was a rumor a little later that the, the uh, caliph, a caliph actually invited the Mongols in to attack Muhammad Horizm Shah. And I think it kind of speaks to the reputation of the Horizmian leadership that people heard that once, yeah, that sounds about right.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, one, and one of the things we should mention as well is we talked about the each surrender or the race the city to the ground. And one of the reasons why the Mongols took, took land so quickly was because a lot of cities did surrender immediately when they heard reputation of the drone Horde and they heard about what they would do if you did not surrender. So, But do you have a percentage of how many cities since so it actually did surrender immediately to the Mongols, and they have more or less, was it half and half? Or
0: I I would hesitate to make any kind of precise statement on there, even because we we see a lot of resistance. The thing is in the sources, what they talk about is the cities who resist. Mm. If a city surrenders without a fight it generally doesn't go mentioned because it's kind of it's not as notable right it's it's the yeah. massacre the slaughter it's destruction this is what stands out to people and this is what mm-hmm. they write about so we do have a handful of like even the Horizmian campaign there are cities who submit and then they they rise up in rebellion say the next year and then the Mongols come back and, and then annihilate the city. And some of the worst destruction you see is a city which submit and then later rebels. These are the ones where you get like the pyramids of skulls and like every living thing in the city is supposed to be killed down to the rats and dogs and like utter destruction and, and, um, these sorts of mm-hmm. things. So I. Strip your edge of nothing. It's it, like, this is what the, the, the the level of destruction of the city, and obviously the Mongols are famous for it, and you don't want to diminish it or minimize it rather. Um, but there is sort of a a playbook almost. Like they have like this level, like fairly consistent kind of level of response to how they treat the city. Mm-hmm. Uh and obviously the best case scenario is you submit immediately, and usually this follows with Mongol demands for. You know you provide the army with foodstuffs and you tear down your walls and fortifications. These are pretty consistently the, the demands and then you often it's provide troops as well allows to put a Mongol official in charge of your of your city
2: uh
0: so this that's like this is like your base level this is what's if you just submit right away, this is what you have to do and, right. and this it's not a minor thing to demolish all of your fortifications mm. but we do see sorry we do see people do this um not infrequently uh, but again it's often kind of minimized in, in the sources because people really part of the reason they want to harp on the destruction if you if you're a writer who hates the mongols you focus on this the destruction because you want to highlight mm. heroic resistance but also Look how terror, terrible this enemy is. Look at the look how much slaughter they've caused. You want to galvanize further resistance, like a unified resistance this time. If you're um, a writer who is working for the Mongols, you mentioned the destruction because you want to go, this is the punishment for resistance. Mm-hmm. And they in that case, then they like they'll also overstate it. Like some of our most exact sorry exaggerated figures for losses in these cities come from people who worked for the Mongols Mm. and they'll say 2 million people were killed here. 1 million people were killed here because Mm. they want you to associate that with Mongol. not because they want you to hate them, or maybe they do, but because they want you to know what the price is for resistance, Mm. that there is no way to resist effectively.
2: Mm.
1: Speaking of taking over control of cities, one of the things, and I want to focus on Russia here, because, medieval Russia, because one of the things you had to do was that you had to go to Canada, to the capital of the Khan. You had to pay tribute to him personally. If you were a Tsar or if you were a ruler of the city, you had to, and it took quite a lot of time, if you think, of taking a plane from Europe to the US or Canada to take time today. It took quite some time. You do have this famous story of this. Let's talk about this journey because it took at least six years, either one way or back and forth. It was six years together, back and forth, especially from Russia, if you're talking Moscow area. You do have the story of this one guy who had to go, one time, I forget his name, but he had to go to the comm, pay tribute to him. Then he went back, and then he thought, oh, wait, you have to do this all over again. And it took, like you said, it took time, quite a significant amount of your time of your life to in the in these vast distances, right? So let's talk about being a vassal for the golden horn and the mongrels.
0: Mm-hmm. So the expectation was for when there was a new ruler, either when you succeed to your throne locally or a new khan is enthroned, that you should, as a good vassal, go in person or send a representative to the court of the Khan. Now we have cases of Rus princes, Armenian princes, Georgian princes going in the cross, the Islamic world as well, going all the way to the Mongol imperial capital of Karakoram in Mongolia in making this journey. And these guys, like I said, they'd be gone for years. They don't actually, the journey itself usually takes about a year. If you're in this farther parts of, uh, or, you know, six months to a year kind of depending, right. but then they usually spend a couple of years in the, in the court actually. Mm. And uh, they get sent back and it could be, uh, you, you could be punished mm. if you failed to do this or kind of late, or especially if the Mongols requested you do it and you refused to. Now this is, we see um, for example, in Syria, right. Some Ayubid princes there they submit to the Mongols and then stop being cooperative and don't appear in person or also in um uh Seljuk, uh anatolia Seljuks of Rome same thing happens there and when this happens, the Mongol army comes in and you get punished quite violently uh in but, the goal- but a lot
1: of this. And again, I said Russia because I read about read about the medieval Russia Bible, so that's my reference to this. That a lot of them, especially, would be looked at smarters if this happened, right? That if if they were sacrificed by by the Golden Horde, they were, were more or less smarters.
0: Later on, more so. There's um. So it, first of all, it does become in in the Golden Horde the princes of. The Rus principalities—it's uh, called going to the Horde. They have mm-hmm. to go to the Khan of the Horde and his encampment, usually at Sarai, and uh, pay their respects, and they receive what's called a Yarlak. so like a decree, mm-hmm. like enthroning them. And this is this could be first of all it's just a dangerous long journey in the first mm-hmm. place, even if nothing happens to you at the court. But we often see. Things do happen to these princes at the court. So they'll do something to disrespect the Mongols. So there's one pr- very early on, like this is this is under Batu. And if I'm remembering right, it's like 1248, maybe 1250, in and around there. Um, one of the Rus princes he goes to Batu's court and he refuses to basically bowed towards an image of Chinggis Khan. Hmm. And he does a couple other things as well that uh, uh, annoy the Mongols too. He, he was, he, also, he was hated by like all of the other Rus princes. So this, hmm. wasn't, uh, this just wasn't the guy who got along with people in general. Hmm. But he and his grandson who was with him both end up being uh, executed on Mongol order. Now, later on, he becomes like a martyr and like a saint in sort of, I think, 16th century, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but at the time, these deaths, what they actually serve when they appear in the earlier chronicles, like the uh, Hallettrion of Chronicle, these deaths of princes, they serve as a warning that this is what happens if you go to the court and you piss off the Khan or if you don't go to the court, mm. you will be punished. What about it sent
1: back to, to their, their respected cities, or whether they just, like, their heads sent back to see that if you don't they... respect us, they... How was the message sent?
0: By the survivors? Mm. <laughs> they don't... The Mongols generally aren't that big on ripping a guy apart and sending the body mm. parts back. Like not that I can I can't really think of any examples off the top of my head. Um be, I, I think they they just send like whoever's because the prince, this Rus prince, he he's not going uh by himself, right? He would have had an entourage with him, you know, other family members. And whoever's surviving from that group is going back and carrying the message. And probably the cons demand for send a new prince that I can enthrone. Or I I've declared such and such family member or relation or other mm. person I like, he's now the prince in charge. Mm. Uh, what's interesting about and it sort of in the uh, the, the historical memory of this becomes, you know, the, the princes resisting the cons and things. But what actually happens is the Rus princes fall in line very quickly. The Rus princes and the Rus church both end up basically enticed to support the Mongols uh, through through these threats, but also privileges. So the Mongols grant uh, tax exemptions to to some of these institutions, especially the church. And, and they say, okay, if you pray for our success and longevity, you don't have to pay these taxes on on your lands, on your servants or whatever. You don't have to do corvee labor. So you don't have to do labor like you and your people and your the people on your lands, uh your your peasants, your serfs, they don't have to come and work for us on our projects in our cities. Hmm. This is a big deal. And they like this and they get on it pretty quickly and they they fall in line. The Rus princes not immediately but fairly quickly end up becoming uh the tax collectors on behalf of the Khan. And if you're collecting taxes for the Khan, do you know what you get? Some of those taxes, you get the money on top of that. You can skim, you can skim, skim the, uh, skim from the bag. And it, especially in the early 14th century, the Rus princes are competing to become the, uh, Kinyas, the, the great prince, the grand prince. Mm. So the chief prince, who is the chief tax collector. And, the chief tax collector gets the most privileges, gets the most amount of that extra revenue. And the Khan, it used to be initially for the position of grand prince, the, all the Mongols would do would be recognize the, the local tradition. They would say, whoever you put forward, we will confirm him." What happens in the 14th century under the powerful Uzbek Khan, uh, now the Mongols become the one deciding who the Grand Prince is and they pick like you, you are my favorite here we get some of these princes spend years at the Mongol court even marry uh, Mongol princesses in order to gain this favor and go back with it because when you have that favor you also get Mongol military support mm. and the Mongols quite regularly send armies into the Rus lands not to raid in general but to back a specific and prince too, I assume. Yeah, and, and raid raid his enemies' lands. Help prop him up. So they, they get, like I said, the Rus princes, they fall in line. And probably wasn't a very good experience for the people at the bottom of the social ladder. Neither the Mongols or the Rus princes cared very much, as long as they all got their slice of the pie.
1: Seems to be uh, a chance in this
0: nail age in Russia as well. Not, not too much changes. Like I said, people... <laughs> After the fact, you get the historical memory of resistance, and they would go, oh, you know the the princes—they're always resisting and trying to, mm. you know, the independence of Russia and stuff. No, they didn't care. There's no idea of a unified Russia, mm. right? Russia isn't existing until centuries yeah. after this. These are princes of Russia, are yeah, the Great. Yeah. They're princes of whatever their principality is, and they also change this principality all the time. So there isn't. There's no nationalism aspect. There isn't any great crusades to throw off the Mongol yoke. Like the, you, You'll sometimes see on maps when people do a map of the Golden Horde, they'll show the Rus principalities as somehow distinct as right. like outside of this and just paying tribute. No. All the information we have suggests the, the Rus princes were incorporated into the Golden Horde in Mongol Empire in the same way everyone else was that they had, they had the same uh, requirements, every other vassal providing troops. When we know Rus, Rus princes and their retinues and troops often fought for the Mongols, some even, it's not great evidence for this or great detail on this rather, but some of them were even sent to fight in China against the Song Dynasty in Southern China. But we also see them fighting in the Caucasus. We also see them accompanying Mongol armies or Golden Horde armies, into uh, Central Europe against Poland and Hungary, uh, also against, um, they're taking part in civil wars between Golden Horde factions, taking part in warfare in the Caucasus. So the Rus are providing troops. We know they're demolishing their fortifications. We know they're paying tribute. They're allowing Mongol census takers into their lands. to So the monks can record the populations to make their assessments for taxation, all these things. So it's the same Tribute demands, or er, demands of a vassal as every other Mongol vassal. The only difference is the Mongols haven't come through here and uniformly replaced all of the Rus princes with someone from Central Asia. But there are times, probably from the Mongol point of view, they did think they did this because we know they're tax collectors in these regions, like the overseers. Are these people from, uh, who are Turks, who are from Central Asia, who are Muslims? And they're very rarely mentioned in the Rus' sources, in the Rus' chronicles, mainly because the Rus' chronicles really like to downplay this vassal aspect. They don't like mentioning, like they only really mention the Mongols when it's like, oh, in such and such year, Prince X went to see the Khan. Mm -hmm. and He came back a couple of years later, or in such year, Mongol army came through, or a Tartar army, as they call it, came through Rus'. Or this year we had uh, census collectors came, like they only speak about these direct interactions. They don't talk about the system as a whole or how it looks from up above. And of course, the Russian historiography you like to really emphasize, oh, we weren't really conquered,
2: Mm.
0: you know. And you you do deal with some nationalists on the internet today who Mm. share the same uh, opinion, who they want Russia uh, Russia, not that it was Russia at the time but the Rus princes, they want the Rus princes to have been removed from this system Right,
1: something that you mentioned earlier, I don't want to go into a little more detail before we get to Tamerlane, is that you mentioned the Silk Road, which brought vast taxation revenue for the Mongols when they to the city, so how significant, How did they go on protecting, again, quote-unquote these Silk Roads for, for their for their own gain, and how did they Successful, where they are doing this protection more or less
0: immensely successful. So, if you remember at the start of our discussion
2: today,
0: I mentioned sort of this feudal division of lands across uh, all of Asia under the Mongol Empire, and so before the Mongol rule in the Western Steppes in Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan today, all of this was. held all these steps were held by turkic nomads called the kuman kipchaks and a, a variety and like a dozen other names as well hmm. but essentially there was not a kuman kipchak state it's like it's sometimes called a kuman kipchak confederation there isn't any evidence for kind of any higher level organization between them so it's essentially <clears throat> sorry essentially like all these little kuman kipchak turkic principalities like all on their own or Khanites even but we don't know what titles they held uh so they they'd raid each other and the so these this is very dangerous territory for traveling merchants don't go through there hmm. the mongols come through they uh displace a huge number of these people of these of these turkic nomads Kiptraks. they reorganize society they appoint their guys in charge and they subjugate it and now, with all of these steps now divided into appanage ulus lands of the Golden Horde, uh, it's peace, like it's peace. At, the peace at the point part of the
1: Mongolia sword. It, it,
0: it really is 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 this concept and one of its best forms here. Is the Mongols turn the steps into? Uh, they, there's no more raiding. Like you might get harassed by the. Mm-hmm. Mongols in charge of it and we see this happen to people who do make the journey and record it but you're not actively being assaulted in these mm-hmm. by a raiding party from rival uh, groups in the step. So they
1: were like the Italian mafia we, you pay us protection money we will protect you they, was, yeah. was it kind of like that?
0: <laughs> in a lot of respects yes <laughs> um, but the, what the Mongols also do is then they take once they've done this as in they take efforts to then promote the trade over the route, so there's lots of um rivers in the steppes in the western steppes that run north south. So things like the Vol- Volga River, Don River, Dnieper, mm. uh, Dnieper, um, a lot of rivers that are unfortunately we are hearing the names of a lot in the news uh today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Um, but these are not easy rivers to cross. But what the Mongols do is they often displace, well, some of these displaced people, uh, Slavic peoples from the Rus principalities or uh, these Kipchak peoples, as they basically force these communities to the river crossings to permanently man ferries over the rivers mm. um, to, to ease the routes of cross. Um, so you have, uh, and to some extent, there's the promotion of the caravan trade. So we know in, the early cities of the of the Golden Horde or the camp settlements is you get the, the caravanserai. So the facilities put in place to serve, service the merchants who do make the journey. So either where they can I trade would, things. I
1: would tell us probably, most of the time like a gas station in today's world. Yeah, wellness.
0: kind of convenience, kind of stop. And these are, these centers, so Sarai, Ukek, um, Ajitarhan, uh all the various cities of the Golden Horde, these centers, they grow as right. more and more trade. Now, this trade extends all the way to Mongol ruled China through Mongol ruled Central Asia. Well, even with the Ilhanite, the Golden Horde often goes to war with its neighbor to the south, the Mongol ruled Ilhanite, in, again, in the Middle East, uh, today's Iran, Iraq, uh, the Caucasus. But even during periods of warfare, we see in the sources, there's still merchants making the journeys through these through the Caucasus mountains. Uh, And also hugely important to the Mongol economy, the Golden Horde economy is the Black Sea, Uh, especially the Crimean Peninsula, which the Mongols control. Obviously, there were some Italian uh, communities there, Genoese, uh, Venetians, not only in Crimea, but also in a number of other settlements across the Black Sea coastline, but even in the uh, Golden Horde capitals who were part of these Medi- these networks going all the way across the Mediterranean, uh, there was large trade with the with so with prisoners or captured peoples uh, in the Golden Horde. They're also sold as slaves to the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt, uh, who become the famous Mamluk warriors uh, there. Um, it's so it's sort of this the Mongols are taking actions to actively promote trade and along the Silk Road economically, uh, literally easing trade at some point by, uh, I don't know if they there's evidence for building bridges, but they're definitely supporting the actual literal routes through the step through the region. Uh, they have these cities that are proving desirable for people to travel to. Uh, they're The strength when the Golden Horde is strong and can enforce Peace on the steps. This is also hugely beneficial to actually getting people to make the journey to find it safe enough to make the journey. Um, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a lot of elements. Like, like, there's much more um, too we can get into. Uh, obviously, I'd, I'd have to look at some of my notes a right. bit um, too. But there's like the archaeology of these cities has revealed objects, coins. Tre- treasures from around the world, uh, and here communities of incredibly diverse origin. You have burials of people, uh, not 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 necessarily the skeletons always surviving, but you can tell from the style of burial. This is, you know, a Christian burial. This is a Muslim burial. But these are also burials of people who would have been originating in China, mm. for example, Mongol burials, Turkic burials. Uh, it's and I, I mentioned this, some of the details of the city a bit earlier. Uh, uh, on so the the Golden hard cons, for them this the Silk Route this Pax Mongolica this ease of trade literally across Mongol Asia was massively important to them, and we see a lot of their decisions, like they have they have trade disputes with the Italians, for example, or the, um, the uh, Mongols would try and increase like the uh, tariffs on, on their goods. We see even uh, trade blockades happening when there's disputes with the um, Italians in Crimea where the Khans try and get more control over this. Um, and as a result, so the Italians will, they put a blockade on the, on the shoreline and then the Mongols, the, the Golden Horde, uh, forbids the export of grains from uh, what's today Ukraine um, its territory across the region and this actually has effects across like all of the eastern Mediterranean because this grain was being sent to people in, in the Byzantine Empire all along the coast through into, into Greece and again, parts of the eastern Mediterranean like all these systems are co- connected here and so the I mean I could go on and on <laughs> and on about do here. it it's, uh, I mean, there's, the, the Italian, it, it's kind of been a little, I don't want to say ignored, but not analyzed as deeply as it could have been. But in recent years, there's been such some fascinating research into materials from Italian Venetian archives that are discussing some of these, these trade connections here. Right. And how you have the Italian Senate or sorry, the, the Venetian Senate debating over how to um, react to political events happening in the Golden Horde because it's their concern over how it's going to affect their trade contacts um, there. And then of course, too, so this is what we've been talking about the Black Sea, but then we also have um, the Baltic, uh, and you know this 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 Hansa League um, interactions there were, uh, we mentioned the rus princes collecting that tribute there, yeah. so we'd have things where when the Hansa League in some years would uh, cut off the silver export to um Novgorod and you know those couple of cities on uh, what what's the what's the gulf that kind of Finland is
1: uh, no not, are you talking about the one by Finland
0: yeah, you know um uh, got let me like checking St- out, actually.
2: It's like,
1: Unfortunately, I don't have a James, so I don't have anyone to look it up for me, so I have to look it up myself. <laughs> uh, are you talking about the one north of Momansk or the one by Finland and yeah, Sweden?
0: N- nor- north of Momansk, where you know, like uh, Saint uh, Petersburg and stuff is on the
1: Barents Sea, is what it's called. No, nope.
0: cannot that be Bering- it? Bering Sea, that's the one on the eastern, like between uh, that's Alaska.
1: north of Momansk, which is the one on like, the Troll Island.
0: Yeah, Isn't that's, that's
1: nice? what comes up. That's the nearest one, or you do have uh, the Karasjok.
0: Karasjok. Ah, that's too. No, that's too, that's no, that's too to north. Anyway, anyway. So the the point is, you have this. Yeah. Um, and these ports here, sort of around the area where Finland. I'm I'm going to remember it as soon as we're done yeah. talking. To you. it's going ah, to come. I'll be <laughs> I'll be so embarrassed about it. Right. Um, but th- this is a really important. So that for the Northern Trade, so. Uh, for the silver coming in, and we'd have cases where even the Hansa League would cut off the silver exports to where Novgorod is. Right. And this having effect on the interactions between where now the Mongols are getting mad at the Rus princes or the Grand Prince, who isn't able to bring in this tribute because he's being affected by the economic conditions uh, over there, but also uh, the, the Golden Horde was a huge exporter of I mentioned grains, but furs, honey, wax, um, salt, um slaves. Mm. Um like like it's easy to sort of dismiss you know that nomads, Mongols, as you know, oh, they're just like these barbarians, these mm. savages. But when you actually get into the sources, you see this surprisingly not even really that surprising but this great interest in economic matters yeah. in making money and taking advantage of the natural or human resources i'm
1: gonna go on a limb here and say that you, i don't know if this sounds racist you know in a way but i hope it doesn't but you think that because they're nomads what do they need money for right what value is money for but it's Clearly, an importance for the nomads as well. know. Well, it's, it's not, not just, that wrong, but you
0: know. Well, it's but it's not even just money. It's also goods from elsewhere. Mm. You know, spices, uh, glass, uh, fine textiles, silk. You know, it's it's not called the Silk Roads, ironically, yeah. right? Um, we see lots of imported weapons and armors from Mammoth Egypt show up mm. in graves in the Golden Horde. Uh, we see wine, you know, there, there's hundreds of, like, amphora, like, found in, in what's now the Golden Horde. I thought oh, that was something
1: the, the rents right there, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I'll guess what you mean.
0: You know, it's like the, like, and money is a huge part. There's, mm. like, the Golden Horde has, has a, a rich, uh, there's a rich study of Golden Horde numismatics. Uh, and it's, mm. It's found, we don't really know that much about it because basically every couple of years it gets like completely overturned where someone makes right. a new argument. And go, wow, that's, I me. Mean, but it's, there's huge coin hordes we find associated with the golden horde. And there's coins from India, China, across Europe uh, that are found in these golden horde hordes. Mm. Uh, you know, and we have to wonder like, and as we're going to get to shortly, all of these cities were, horribly sacked and looted at the mm. close of the 14th century and, and in the 15th century too. So we're, everything we find archaeologically or mentioned right. in the sources is only a small fraction of the wealth of these cities. And you
1: let, let me know there. So let's come to the invention before Tamil or Timur Lank. If you don't believe that was his original name. How, how did it come out? But did he have a personal vendetta against the Mongols, or did he just want to be conqueror? conqueror? So, he, first, did, how did he get to power? So, Anton so, so the Timur was
0: born in what's now Uzbekistan mm. in the 1330s. Uh, there's a popular, I think 1335 is normally called his year of birth, but it's, it, it coincides with the year of the death of the last really powerful Ilhan. Mm. So it's probably a retroactive thing rather than his actual year of birth. But so he's born in the 1330s and sort of this minor uh, Turkic Mongolic um, aristocracy. So he alleges to have been able to trace his ancestors to a shared ancestor with Chinggis Khan, his the family line he belongs to, it appears in Mongolia in the early 13th century. Um, but he, he's in sort of the upper aristocracy of a kind of minor group of, of nomads who are around Samarkand. Right. And he, he's basically a nobody up until the Khan, I won't get too deep here, but the Khan of the Eastern Khanites. Comes and um, has an invasion, knocks out the local powers, and the leader of Timur's—well, let's call it here a tribe. It's not really a tribe, but the leader here—he flees before this this Khan, and this Khan then appoints Timur as the man in charge of, and this sort of becomes the—the starts the Timur's rise to power. We should mention as
1: well there is one reason why he strolled in famous to Tamil Lane because of it, one of his arms was disabled, which is an arm I mean, and a leg.
0: Hmm. So he's
1: You don't think he that ultimate warrior to mm, to bring it down the Mongols.
0: We get different versions of what happened here, and there's some versions are more negative than others because some are it's a bit more heroic. Some of them it's like he was stealing a sheep, and the the owner of the sheep shot him with an arrow, and it's that he lost his. Um, we see it in the sources, and also when they exhumed his body in the 1940s, that he had <laughs> a significant wound to—I think it was his right leg. Um, like he walked with a pronounced limp, uh, and probably couldn't have walked very far on his own. And he was also missing at least two fingers on his right hand, the two smaller mm. fingers, and he might have had other wounds to it as well.
1: Like I said, you don't think that is warrior material. It
0: was, he was—he basically. Over the 1360s, he kind of goes through this period of like vagabondage where he's kind of reduced just like a few followers and he's kind of in this period of constant Mm -hmm. fighting. The wound occurs at some point there and then he starts being called uh, by people who don't like him as Timur Ilang in Persian or Aksak Timur in Turkish, which is... uh, that uh, means Timur the Lame, and hence in English Tamerlane. Right, when he's more often, known, which is it's often useful to call him as that because almost every other guy in this period is named some variation of Timur. Mm. It means iron in Turkic and Mongolian, and it was hugely popular part of names. And it's sometimes hard to tell who's being spoken about because of it because they're all named Timur or something. Mm. But anyways, so Timur when he's rising to power he's picturing it like he's justifying himself as a protector of the Mongol government. Mm. Because here's the thing, as the Mongol Empire breaks up, the Chinggisid legitimacy itself doesn't go away. Mm. Like for Timur's followers, who are also mainly these horse archers, these nomads, they're still viewing that the rightful ruler of the world has to be a descendant of Chinggis Khan so Timur who is not a descendant of Chinggis Khan even though he marries into the family and tries to claim common ancestry with him he can't rule in his own right so almost for his entire length of the time he actually has power from 1370 until his death or until like one year before his death he is, his official title is just like emir, of just like a guardian or um, and he, the actual ruler is uh, a Chinggisid prince who he just has as a puppet and he cycles mm-hmm. through a number of them and they're basically nobody's... He's a
1: regent, more or less in a sense.
0: Yeah, he's he's the guard like there's a, a the best anecdote of this is mm-hmm. um, the famous scholar Ibn Khaldun meets Timur outside of Damascus in Oh, fourteen hundred, I think fourteen hundred, maybe. I'm fourteen oh one. I'm getting the year kind of mixed up here, about like that kind of range. It can be yeah. fourteen hundred 1400 to fourteen oh two. And um, so Ibn Haldun has a meeting in Timur in, in his ordu, and he's and Ibn Haldun, he's he's just fluffing Timur up. He's saying all these, "Oh, you're so powerful, the ruler of the world." And Timur goes, "I'm not the ruler of the world. I'm just a guardian of the Khan, who's right here." And he goes to point to the Khan. And then they find out the Khan isn't even in the tent. Like he snuck out to go drinking or something. And like, there's this moment, like awkward silence. We're looking around like, where is he? Where where is he? Like, like they're, they're, they're maintaining this facade of it. Right. Uh, Which is, it's important because if you remove this, this is going to be like um, spiritually unwise. Like it's going to bring misfortune to get rid of this guy and be ruling in your own right. Like both like this metaphysical sense, but also in a physical sense, there's a lot of princes and things who aren't going to take light, who aren't going to take nicely to the idea of Timur doing away with without this modicum of respect for the Chingisid lineage. So what Timur does, he wants to make a basically a collection of puppet cons. So he has a puppet con for the Cha Tai Khanite, then he has a puppet con for the uh, Ilhanite, and then he has a Puppet con, or he tries to have a Puppet con for the Golden Horde. Now this is we c- brings us to Tokhtamish Han. So Tokhtamish is a descendant of Jochi, but from a secondary, one of the minor sons. I don't remember which one right now, because there is some debate over which son it was, actually. Mm. Um, and it, it changes depending on the source. Uh, Tokhtamish, he ends up down on his luck and he flees to uh, Timur's court, and he gets some backing from Timur. He gets some support, and Timur helps Tokhtamish take power in this eastern half of the Khanite, this Blue Horde or White Horde, in the east. And from there, Tokhtamish, on his own, is sort of able to take power. And while Timur is fighting in the south, in in Iran and India, Timur is steadily, or Tokhtamish is steadily traveling west. And able to take power in the Golden Horde and declare himself Khan. Now, Tokhtamish basically at this point goes, I'm the big dog now. Because at that point, there basically isn't another Chinggisid Khan who's actually having real power. The Mongols have been expelled from China and the Khan has fled to Mongolia, but he doesn't really have, it's very like, Probably Toktomish didn't really know what was happening with him. So Toktomish just kind of assumes he's not to be considered. Toktomish knows the Khan is just a puppet for uh, Timur. And in the Ilhanites, there isn't, there isn't an Ilhanite anymore. Hmm. So Toktomish changes his title. He's not just Toktomish Khan, he's Toktomish Khan. That is Khan of Khans. Hmm. This is previously the title resumed or reserved for the the great Khan, the, right. the main Khan of the Mongol Empire, the chief overlord. So this is the title of like that the Khans in China had held. Hmm. So Tokhtamish takes this himself, and it seems he starts going, like, okay, um, so for the last 40 years, the Golden Horde had suffered from the Black Death some ecological crisis, um, constant civil wars, disruption of its economy. With the breakup of these other Khanites, this really upends the, as well as the Black Death, this really upends the Silk Road economy the Golden Horde had been reliant upon.
2: Mm.
0: So Tokhtamish he wants to reverse this. He wants to put things on the right course. He's really proud of his Chinggis ancestry. He's tightening the leash on Dissidents within the Golden Horde, within the Rus principalities. He burns down Moscow in 1382. And it's like he's on track here to like make the golden make the golden horde great again, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and so he looks at Timur, and what he sees in Timur is a rival. He is like infuriated by the disrespect that Timur is showing to the Chingisid lineage. By presuming to rule over the lands that should rule, to that should belong to the to the Chingisids, like like Tokhtamish is not falling for the puppet Khan facade that Timur is putting on here, and they're both interested in ruling the same territories in Central Asia and the Caucasus and Iran. With the loss of the, uh, or with the fall of the Ilkhans, the Golden Horde. Wants to take control of those lands directly, especially the caucuses around Tabriz, Azerbaijan today, and uh, and and just the sheer fact that you had two militarized, very expansionist, ambitious, massively powerful states side by side each other—it's not really a good uh, good formula for neighborly relations, you know. Is in all reality, it's Probably both of them are thinking it's a matter of time before one of us attacks the other. Toqtamish has the first blow, and he starts invading these these Caucasian lands and then Central Asia. He um, lays siege to Timur's capital of Samarkand, and Timur can't let this bide, and he invades the Golden Horde twice. And both times he's victorious, but both times the battles, they're closely fought. Like, both of these men are very good commanders. Uh, These are probably the narrowest victories Timur has. Uh, And, I mean, he wins. That's all that ends up mattering. But it's, Togtomish gives him a run for his money here. Like, these are massive, massive battles. Uh, But after both of these campaigns, Togtomish escapes Timur. Timur can't catch him. But Timur beats his army in the field. So after the first campaign, Timur had withdrawn, and he tried to appoint a puppet ruler there, but Tokramish is able to sort of come back, throw the guy out, get his power again, and attack Timur again. So the second time around, Timur can't let this slide, because he knows, okay, if I leave here without doing anything about this, this same thing's going to happen again in another two, three, four, five years. So this in 1395, after Timur's like victory on the Terek River. Uh, Timur then goes on a methodical campaign, basically annihilating every single major urban center of the Golden Horde with the capitals of Sarai, Ukek, Haji Tarhan, uh, into Crimea. Uh, either Timur is leading the campaigns himself or sending his guys out, and it's just like utter destruction of these, of these sites and settlements. They find some of these um cities when they excavate them they find the bodies weren't even buried afterwards like they find the the skeletons were just left to lie and were covered they find even piles of skulls in some of these ones signs of where where buildings were burnt down and never rebuilt like it was like Tamer was thorough yeah and he comes in and he's giving a death blow to a golden horde that actually seemed to be getting back on its feet after some hard 40 years. Uh, and then he he calls off the campaign in 1396. There's been resistance against him. He Timur never likes leaving his lands uh, unoccupied for too long. He's worried about getting overextended, so then he falls back to his empire. He points uh, some puppet cons to try and like set up you know, make this a more compliant area. But they get overthrown, and Toqtomish then spends the next 10 years, basically, in constant fighting, trying to get the throne back. Uh, And then Toqtomish's sons do this for another 10 years. Uh, And there's a couple guys, there's, you have a figure named Edegu, who is not a Chinggisid, but he he appoints a bunch of Puppet cons and he's in conflict with Togtomish, Togtomish's sons. Toktemish, he's getting support from the Lithuanians and in invading the Golden Horde. Um, one of Togtomish's sons actually fights alongside the Lithuanians at the Battle of Tannenberg or Grunwald in 1410, I think it is, against the Lithuanians and Poles versus the Teutonic Knights. Um, Togtomish's son fights alongside the Lithuanians and then the Lithuanians give him some support for attacking the, for trying to reclaim the throne of the Golden Horde like the next year and he actually does it and he lasts I think two years before he gets deposed and killed um, and it basically, but this is what happens following Timur's invasion is you get a couple guys who are able to hold on to power for five, maybe ten years and then they're overthrown and it falls into years of civil war and conflict, and essentially, what happens? I like think stabilize, like the th- 1430s, into like three or four power centers, and then the next decade will be spent in constant fighting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And essentially, like it's not like one moment of breakup. It's kind of like uh, this <coughs> steady, this steady course of these power centers developing. And kind of like shaking themselves apart steadily over years and years and years Mm -hmm. until they're just becoming their own uh, Khanites. By the middle of the 15th century, so around 1450, you're starting to see them really just being their own Khan. Like each one still thinks he's the Khan of the Golden Horde. But the problem is you have like four or five guys at a time considering themselves the Khan of the Golden Mm -hmm. Horde.
1: This is like after the Roman Empire fell, everyone wanted to be the Roman Empire, yeah. and everyone saw themselves as the successor of Roman the Roman Empire. You had five or six of them.
2: Yeah, so it exactly. Like
0: and this this does huge damage to just the prestige of the position, but also mm. the actual power of each of these cons as they're being wasted in civil wars. It completely obliterates these trade networks that had been so carefully built up in the 13th and early 14th centuries. Mm. Um, And this is good for, for example, for the Rus princes, who are in this period gradually being subsumed under the power of the Prince of Moscow.
1: Hmm. Because Um, you have to remember that Moscow was irrelevant, basically up until now, it was just a small city-state up up until this time of of age.
0: This is, without the, like the Prince of Moscow only rises to power because hmm. he uh, get some good with the Khan of the Golden Horde hmm. Uzbe, in the early 14th century. This is the only reason they end up being anything other than just this little village in the wilderness. Um, but, I mean, this is also the period you see uh, the, the conversion, like the, like the total conversion of the, uh, Tur- the Turkic and nomadic elements of the Golden Horde to Islam, for example. Um, this process is essentially completed by 1500, let's say. Like it had been a steady process since the conversion of Berkhan in the 1250s, and, but it's slow going. Mm. And then also by this point, you've also long re- lost uh, Mongolian as even the language of the royal family. It's been replaced by uh, Turkic languages and mm. hence their, their Tartars rather than, than Mongols we should be calling them by that point. And, and of
1: course is this when, is this when we consider the end of the Golden Horde as and the Mongol Empire after Timur's
0: invasion? The the end we can usually 1502 is considered the end. This is because what happens is the Khan of Crimea defeats kind of the, the other major claimants to being Khan of the Golden Horde in battle. Uh, but now in sort of the older historiography, you'd see as like, this is the end. The Golden Horde ceases to exist at this moment. But what we actually see from the contemporary sources and letters of, from the period after this year, the Khan of Crimea, he sees himself as having Become the Khan of the Golden Horde, hmm. and he starts referring to himself as Great Khan of the Great Ulus. Um, And he actually extend, extends his power eastwards, retakes some of his old Golden Horde territory, and there's an effort to like restore the Golden Horde. Hmm. Like they don't see it as as ending in 1502. And-, and
1: we spoke about this offline as well before we started recording that while Putin when he invaded. Crimea, he talks about this historical claim that Russia has this historical claim, but the Khanate itself, like you talked about, it did exist. Basically, although it was a vassal later of the Ottomans, it did exist up until 1700s, late yeah. 18th century until Catherine the Great invaded. So, it did exist for a long time.
0: Yeah, you, you can you can fully make the argument that the Golden Horde stops existing when uh, Catherine the Great annexes the Mm. Crimean Khanite it's you you could even make the argument that some of the Khanites that emerge in Central Asia such as the um are because they're ruled by lines of the the, of Jochi of his sons and their descendants you can also say these are also the heirs successors of the Golden Horde even though uh, there isn't really great evidence for them actually continuing the title of Khan of the of the Golden Horde, of the Great Horde over there. Um, but it doesn't, like I said, it's not, the Golden Horde doesn't just stop existing one year. right? It's, it's essentially this, you have this period of formation of like its high, its, its greatest power, early 14th century, a period of decline in late 14th century, rises again under Toctomish. You have the invasion of Temur. It's, it's a mortal wound it doesn't recover from, but it doesn't, kill it then. it's sort of yes. from there it's a steady kind of breaking apart and sort of imagine a really old car that's been beaten the hell in back and it's driving that's still got a couple kilometers left on and it's shaking and there's parts flying off of it but it's not it's not coming to a full stop no one's slamming on the brakes it's just kind of going along and it's been left in neutral and it's kind of like coasting along
1: right slowly dying
0: Yeah, exactly. So, like, like depending on how you want to read it, the Golden Horde, as part of the Mongol Empire, exists for five hundred years, six hundred years. That's quite impressive. It's it's not a, it's not a, it's not a small thing. And for a great part of that history, it's a major world power. You know, uh, and the again when. Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century is annexing these these other khanites. You know, it's sort of he's playing a bit in his diplomacy with the khan's, the uh, khan's of uh, Kazan, of the khan's of uh, of Siberia, of um, Astrakhan. You know, there's an effort kind of playing in the diplomacy of of sort of into these tropes of the Golden Horde of uh, where where the where the Russian Tsar, he's he's the the white Tsar, the white Khan, but even the title of Tsar, so this comes from uh, obviously originally from Caesar, yes. And in the medieval Rus Chronicles, it's not used for the Rus princes, it's used for the Khan of the Golden Horde. Tsar is a translation of Khan, of Emperor. So when the Russian, when the Prince of Moscow is becoming Tsar. He's not just kind of the successor to Rome because it's kind of like the successor to the Golden Horde in a way. Now, Hmm. I don't want to overstate that because uh, some people like to go like, oh, Russia's the successor to the Golden Horde and this is why they're doing what they're doing in Ukraine right now. No, because most, like Russia, like I said, Russia plays a little bit diplomatically with this aspect or Muscovy plays a little bit with this diplomatically. But most of the Russian... Uh, Imperialism—the way it develops—is mostly this European imitation. It's not this this con aspect is only kind of existing in diplomacy and negotiations with other uh, nomadic powers, and kind of like almost from the sense of like we can make them understand our new empire better if they just think of us as a continuator rather than a wholly new right. thing, and it's kind of. The like, like even under Yvonne the terrible, there part of the reason he does this expansion is because it's like this crusading fervor takes over in his uh, court, and he's convinced uh, to do some of these things. Um, but they don't. Uh, I mean, it, it's 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 a complicated, and I'm not really I'm not a historian of this later period, so I don't want to step on my own foot here. I'm sure I probably have in some mm-hmm. aspect said something that's been, you know, shot dead in the scholarship for uh, years there, but there is, I, I suppose in almost typical Russian fashion, that kind of not quite Eastern, not quite Western. Um, it's often accused of now. I, as someone who studies the long Empire specifically, I don't really see a continuation and really a practical level of this Mongol to Russian, imperial. like it's two, it's they're very different in forms here, like the, from the Russian, like you see different periods, but a general trend to towards uh, trying to like Christianize the local peoples and, you know, break up their uh, local system, local networks and things and really get into the everyday lives of the people in a way that you don't see under the Mongols. Like, that, that's a much more European form of imperialism and colonialism than, uh, the, than the Chinggisid one was, because the Chinggisid nomadic one, is kind of, it's almost more uh, this extraction, you know, if, if that makes sense, like this yeah. idea of, like, as long as you pay your taxes and whatever, we don't care what you do in your everyday life. We don't care who you worship, as long as worshipping, or you're, you're praying for the, the health of the khan.
1: Now, they they obviously have the Golden Horde obviously have a huge impact on Mongol history and Asian history in itself, but what what would you say is the legacy of the Golden Horde?
0: I I mean, there's a huge influence on the um, sort of migration and movements of the Turkic peoples across the region. And so a lot of them, Ka- Kazakhs, Uzbeks, Tatars, are um, you know tracing their origins either symbolically or from a just purely genetic sense to the through the Golden Horde. Um, it was hugely important as kind of this highway for the Silk Roads and this Pax Mongolica kind of period it's um, one of the consequences of it of course is this accidental unification of the Rus principalities and domination of Moscow
2: hmm.
0: over them Um
2: and are a the, huge
1: influence on medieval Russian history yeah, for sure. the
0: borders of Russia today why it's such a huge state is this pushing east into the golden horde lands and kind of this um, first, at a practical level, of like okay, because nomadic peoples of the successors of the Horde continue to raid and attack uh, Rus principalities, or in, in early Muscovy, the Crimean Khans even burned down Moscow. Um, oh, what's the years? Fifteen, like quite late, fifteen eighty, I want to say. No, that's I might me. Be, I might be <laughs> wrong. Some
1: you are the historian here, not me. <laughs>
0: i don't know we're we're getting i'm getting onto shaky ground here but they don't stop being a military threat and this affects a lot of the actions of the muscovy and the early russian empire is uh in reaction to still the continued potential threat of and uh these nomadic states or of the golden horde successors the Crimean khanite and its connection to the ottoman empire is um, a huge effect on also on the Russian Empire as it's trying to expand southwards. Comes like this playing stone there. Um, that bra- to... didn't
1: bring an end, and as I mentioned this before as well, they did bring an end to the Abbasid Caliphate in late, I think it was thirteenth oh. century. I think.
0: Yeah, well, that's if we want to go to the Mongol Empire. Oh. As well. was, was in, there were Golden Horde troops. Hmm. partook in the Saka Baghdad but the, I think Hulagu of the Ilhanites right. take more credit right. uh, for that I'm thinking of the Golden Horde right. in particular on its, on its own um, yes and then it continued to affect uh, Poland, Hungary um, they sort of the consolidation of these states in the 14th century um, we can attribute some of this to the uh threat the mongols pose uh i mean you could go into i i I don't tend to like the the oh why why is this why is this state important for world just because every every state is important for world everyone has its role to to play and if you remove even a single one you get a very different modern world yeah um um today so i'm just i'm just trying to like point out some of the bigger more obvious uh um, aspects here so I mean how, how
1: is Mongol history in general taught? do you do you not have an idea how it's taught in Mongolia it, itself how, how is
0: generally in Mongolia today um, the way it works like the school systems and, and stuff there is the focus is on the early Mongol Empire specifically the life of Chinggis Khan. it's the conquests outside of Mongolia aren't really that emphasized like it's not really a good look to go like the whole conquest asp- aspect like when it is brought up it's mentioned in context of things about religious religious freedom and freedom of trade and freedom or uh, of connectivity are these are kind of the elements that get associated with the mongol empire not the military aspect in terms of the modern Mongolian image Mm. of it like even the the golden horde it's the golden horde itself in terms of the specific state is a very minor part of this in terms of the modern Mongolian conception of the not that it's not but it's kind of like almost incidental and quite secondary to because for in Mongolia the important legacy of Genghis Khan is the unify the unifier of the Mongolic peoples and creation of a specifically Mongolian identity, promotion of the Mongolian language within the Mongolian plateau. And it's is like, it it's kind this...
1: of a, and you said this earlier on that there was no nationalism. And me stated this before in the podcast that nationalism wasn't you made even an episode in the history of nationalism last year. But it is a kind of nationalistic pride in a sense. It's become
0: like Chinggis Khan is, I, I would say. For an American audience, let's say, like the kind of way you'd hear an American talk about George Washington, yeah. you know, this this kind of idea, the great unifier. And this is why Chinggis in particular has um, this association, like this kind of sage-like, um, pro- like a protective father-like figure of the nation. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is, that's where most of them Today, Mongolian focus on the Mongol Empire um, uh, is so, I mean, the the military, there are people who like the military side, of course, and like the, Mm. you know, dream of the days when uh, the Mongols are bossing around China and Russia, Mm. of course, but it's, it's, that's, that's a minority part of, uh, it's, people are quite loud about that on the internets, because those sorts of people always are quite loud on, on those things but no most the, the the legacy of the mongol empire in mongolia is the creation of a mongolia yeah. really do
1: you think there would be a mongolia as we know it today without you know, any strong oh,
0: not uh, not at all i mean without Chinggis Khan, you have the entire planet looks dramatically yeah. different so I don't want to even fathom a guess as to what uh, would or would not. It's a rabbit
1: hole for sure.
0: It's uh, that's many, that's years of your life to fully investigate what that might have been. <laughs> so both on a massive scale and a large scale in terms of historical detail. There,
1: yeah. I think we're going to it after I think if you listen this long, I think we spoke for almost two hours now. and <laughs> <laughs> I could easily, like I would always say, I can easily talk about another hour of history if I had the time. But before I go, of course, you mentioned the YouTube channel, which I will put in the description. Do you have anything else you want to promote? You have social media on Twitter, of course. Do you oh. have anything else you want me to plug down yes, in the
0: description? So on Instagram and Facebook and those things. And the the Jackmeister Mongol history, if you look that up, that's the name you'll find me under. So, Mm. and you'll find, I post a bunch of stuff on my research, but also on aspects of Mongol history. I talk about the scholarship, the primary sources, uh, all those sorts of things. Kind of, I jump around on different parts of the empire. I'm not really focused on, I do a lot of research on the Golden Horde my PhD, but in general, I write about many different aspects hmm. uh, of it.
1: What do you cover on your YouTube channel? Let's talk about that before. You on my YouTube channel,
0: them. mostly the videos I post now are kind of like the myth, is myth busting kind of thing. This kind of like the one I, my most recent video I dealt with the idea of This Han having green green eyes and red hair. Hmm. This kind of popular one, and I traced it through the primary sources and went, okay. This isn't actually in the primary sources, but here's where this image may have come from. And I do a lot of this. I'm, when I post video, because I, I don't post videos that often, but I like this going into like uh, this common mis- misconceptions. Like, like I, I'm doing one right now, or it's going to be a short series about uh, blacksmithing and uh, metal production in the step, And because the common image is, this didn't happen in this step, but I'm going to showcase the, the archaeological um, research and the textual support for the ways this was done, both in the Mongol Empire and earlier nomadic peoples.
1: I definitely subscribe myself, and hope <sighs> you will do the same. This has been with that H12. We are also available on social media on Twitter under with H12, Instagram with that H12. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. And if you are on iTunes, please consider writing a little review if you like this episode. That would help us out a lot. Please check out some other episodes, and you're definitely going to find something that you like. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.